0: I just have to say that uh, if you're visiting this morning, you've come at a wonderful time in the our life of the church because we're starting a new little series looking at God, women, and uh, the healing of humanity. Now, actually only time will tell if this is a wonderful time to come. Um, <laughs> Could be terrible. Um, You never know. I have to say, at nine o'clock, I I managed this sermon went for forty-five minutes. That was the shortened version. I hear you all saying, "Oh, that's amazing! Bring it on! An hour and a half? Let's go, Mark." Let me tell you, uh, I found it uh, extremely hard to do justice, even to start scratching the surface of this complicated topic in that amount of time. So um, I'm going to do my best to uh, to see how we go with time, but I, it's probably going to be, it might be a little longer than normal because it's actually an incredibly significant thing, and um, it might also feel a little more like a lecture than sometimes um, because it's an incredibly significant thing. So I wanted to start off this question. We're looking at. God, women, and the healing of humanity, we're looking at gender roles, the role of women in our church, the role of women in our society, in our world, in our culture, how women and men relate to each other. And uh, this begs the question, and as we start getting into this, um, why, why is it hard to have a discussion about this? Because it seems to me hard. Like I posted on uh, Facebook that I was going to do this and I felt quite nervous about starting the series. And there have been people, oh, how's it going to go? You know, and a bit of feedback on Facebook and some people are excited and others are nervous. And um, Why is it hard to talk about the role of women and of men in the church and in our society? This is not a rhetorical question. Feel free to stick your hand up if you're a bloke. Sorry, I jest. Uh, Rolf. Because some of us are men and some of us are women. That makes it hard. Yep, that's it. That's right. Uh, There was a great book by a guy years ago. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Made a lot of money uh, selling that difference. Yep, so it's hard because, you know, some of us are men and some of us are women. Because we're different, okay? Men and women. What else makes it hard to have this discussion and to think about this together? A lot of baggage. How many G's? A lot of baggage. What kinds of baggage do we have around this topic? History. history. What? What about history? Ah. Person, uh, and, um, uh, Treatment of women. Yeah, it's awesome. Lots of baggage historically. The role of scripture, interpretation. The Bible has been an instrument of patriarchal oppression of women. This is a current narrative in our society, isn't it? All religion and particularly traditional Christianity is bad for women. Jan, I saw your hand. Uh, yes so uh, hashtag things Christian women hear, if you want to search that it's um, it 's not enormously edifying reading um, it 's actually traumatizing like it 's really traumatizing like it 's really abusive um, so there is a, a massive there 's an epidemic of abuse uh, against women being a woman is uh, a major health risk, right? So particularly in the developing world, if you are a woman, you are vulnerable, you are... I've, there's this book by Gary Haugen who's called The Locust Effect. I'll have some copies here for next week. He's the guy who founded International Justice Mission. And he's got this whole chapter on the statistics around violence against women, and it's, it's terrible reading. It's just... If you're a woman between the ages of 15 and 44, you're four times more likely to be killed... By uh, by domestic violence, by by viol- by everyday violence, than you are by car crashes, war, uh, malaria, tuberculosis, and AIDS in the developing world. Four times more likely to be killed by a man in your community. Isn't that extraordinary? Like that makes it really hard to actually think and talk about this. What else makes it hard to talk about? Yeah, Corinne. Our cultural norms are changing. Cultural norms, yeah. Oh, yeah, Ants? Uh around power rather than love, I think it's hard to talk about and women are not under power. Yeah, well, one of the, exactly. So there's a lot, the dynamics of power between the genders are massive. So the, the, the reason women are abused and killed more than men is because they're weaker than men physically. So in the history of the world is wherever there are weak people, they're going to be taken advantage of by the powerful. That's hard. Yeah, yeah Trevor. Because we have the balance right, we feel threatened that we're a man, or a man once this has an issue. Yeah. Yeah, and there's so much um, there's so much heat and noise around this, isn't there? And and we're all triggered so very easily by this. Um, and so you see this in the in the in our culture, M- the men feel like they're victims. Men's groups, and if you talk about the way men are treated in the family court system, for example, and you look at the, the mental health outcomes of men and the, the likelihood of their suicide, and you go, well, men feel like they're having a difficult time, and and easily get triggered to be, you know, all like, well, we need to stand up for men, and and so then and then but then women on the other hand also feel like they're having a difficult time, and they are. And so we very easily and quickly get triggered, and it's complicated and hard and messy. And look, then it gets even more complicated because you add the LGBTI and transgender debate into gender roles and gender identity, and that adds a level of complexity uh, and division. So, uh, you know, people who advocate a hard, sort of, a very strong view on gender fluidity, that gender is all just a social construct, uh, come up b- banging hard up against y- your classic feminist view. That, uh, you know, so, so it's really tough, right? But it's not just baggage out there, is it? Um, it's also baggage in here. Like, none of us come to this topic as a blank slate. We've, we've all been raised by women and men. We've all been loved by women and men. We've all been hurt by women and men. And that affects us, right, deeply. And we bring that to this topic, And uh, then we theologize it, and we ideologize it, and we use it to divide and conquer, to protect ourselves. And we don't... And and so it's tough, right? It's really hard. Now, the question you should be asking yourselves now is, Mark, if it's that hard, why are we talking about it? Well, here's something you should know about me. Um, I... if there's something that's hard and difficult and, uh, and um, contentious, let's talk about it because that's the stuff that's really interesting. It's the same in all relationships, in any organization, in any culture. The, the unspoken stuff that we tiptoe around, the great big elephants in the room, those are the things that if you move towards them, if you lean into those things and chat about them and bring them to the surface as adults, that's where the greatest growth emerges, right? So I really think that um, this is incredibly important for us uh, to think about, um, I think our culture is confused. Uh, I think in the church we're confused. Um, Some disclosure about my background: some of you have already, you you may know this about me. Um, I grew up, uh, you know, growing up in Africa, but growing up with a dad who was, you know, basically pretty useless. And a mum who is a a doctor, a very intelligent, very strong, very smart woman. I was raised by my mum and my grandmother, who was a a, a very, very tough, smart uh, Jewish lady, survivor of being a refugee from the Holocaust, all of that stuff. So in my life, I've just been, I was raised by and surrounded by very strong, intelligent, courageous women. And... um, it it never occurred to me that there was a fundamental difference between men and women and the roles they could occupy in the world until I got into the church. And I remember as a teenager in this church in Cape Town hearing this guy who was a visiting lecturer from the theological college preaching from Isaiah. And he took a text in Isaiah and he said, the reason Western Western civilization is in decline is we've, we've turned away from the word of God. Here's an example. The fact that Margaret Thatcher is the leader of England is a sign of God's judgment on England because they've got a woman leading them, not a man. I was like, hmm. Ain't nobody got time for that. I mean, like, that was really weird. I, I, that was quite, a, I was quite surprised. I mean, I shouldn't have been because this was the same church and the same guy who thought that apartheid had sort of some, some good theological groundings in it. So... Um, so when, when I grew up in Africa, though, I did see all of the world in the, in, through the lens of race. You grow up in Africa, and you, you, you classify everybody white, black, colored Indian. That's just built into the South African culture. When, when I married Margot, and she and, and I would talk, and she came back to South Africa, I realized she was essentially colorblind. Having grown up in Australia, you don't... There is other racism in Australia, for sure, but that particular way of seeing the world in black, white, coloured, Indian was just just Margot didn't see people like that and automatically classify them like that. Um, my experience is, and, and you, I having spent, I just don't. When my experience in the church is, I don't see everything in terms of gender. I don't see men and women. Men do this, women do that. I don't, that's not the way we do marriage. That's not the way we do life. That's, I just don't see it. So it's actually been quite interesting coming back into Sydney, and we might, we might edit this out or we might not. Um, I don't know. And, and I, I want to be really respectful of my brothers and sisters in, in, the, in the rest of the city of Sydney, in all denominations, but in our tribe, to see that somehow they've got gender goggles on. And, and they're obsessed about who does what and why and, and, and how some people can do some stuff and, it's, and all this fighting about this stuff. And I'm just it's been really quite confusing uh, for me and perplexing. I'm like, that's just weird, right? Because I just don't see the world that way. Uh, but I know many other people do uh, for good reasons and for ill. So we're going to try and think about this. Um, I, I think it's really significant for us as a church. Now, here's the other reason why. Two reasons. One is our role in the city as a church, for us here at Darling Street, I think we, we need to model a healthy way of understanding the way women and men relate in our diocesan politics and in the church ecosystem of Sydney. I think that's really an important role we have. It's part of our history and our DNA of this church going back to the mid-90s. So that's really significant. But secondly, you know what's really significant as well is... Uh, Something, uh, Dallas Willard, who is my um, kind of theological and spiritual and intellectual mentor in some ways, by virtue of his books. And Willard Willard says in his book on discipleship, Renovation of the Heart, he makes this point. He says, the most important thing the church can do is to train and equip women and men to relate to each other well. Like, that's the most... All these big issues and these big ideas, the, the narratives of, of feminism and different forms of feminism and, and gender fluidity and the power dynamics and all our own baggage, all of that stuff out there is important and significant. Church politics, which isn't significant, but it's there. you Actually, but you know what, what makes it really important? It goes right back to Rolf's point. Well, we're actually different, women and men, and, and we, in Christ... Have a vision and a means to learn how to relate to each other, uh, women and men that is life giving and transformative, and the rest of our city needs to needs to see what that looks like, and we need to see what that looks like and we need to get better at that. Let me make it even more personal. I need to get better at that like i 've read these hashtags, and I'm, I've been reading the Bible for the last few weeks, trying to get into the eyes of the women. I've been reading this feminist theology, and, and I'm immersed in the IJM world of, of this violence against women and children, and um, it's, it's broken my heart because I go, "How have I? How have I colluded uh, unconsciously out of my position of white privilege in, in the, the oppression of women and children? How have I failed?" as a human being and as a man, to make this work? And what damage have I done? And how have I... You know, so it's, it's intensely personal, really, isn't it, for all of us? I mean, uh, you know, how many of us are completely convinced that our relationships with members of the opposite gender are as good as they could ever possibly be? <laughs> I don't know, there's always room for improvements. So I'm hoping we're going to get... better. We- this is going to be a series to help us think about this. Um, now, uh, that's um, that's just a bit of the introduction of why we're doing it and why it's why it's important. And um, I the, the other thing I've got to say is uh, we are going to disagree with each other on this, right? And that's okay. I can't say everything from up the front. This isn't, and what I'm saying uh, from up the front is not all there is to say. There's a lot more to be said, and that's okay. And it's actually okay to differ. Um, on this issue, uh, in, well, on some of these issues, it's okay. Some of these issues, if you disagree with me, you're just plain wrong. Um, but on other issues, you just disagree, and we're, it's, we're not sure. You know, there's, there's, a, there's space for, for difference around this. So that's, that's where we're at, okay? And uh, I'll try and make clear the difference. So now, all that said, uh, let me do, um, give you a quick lesson in uh, hermeneutics. Which is the study of the interpretation of Scripture, which is really what a lot of this comes down to, right? So here we go, here's the Bible. I heard that yawn. It's too early in the sermon to be yawning, man. Go get another coffee. Um, (laughs) So sometimes this is we sometimes this is how we think the Bible works. So if if you're a Christian, this is we take the Bible, we want to take Bible, the Bible, this text as scripture as the Word of God, okay? This is authoritative uh, Word of God. This is God speaking to us. And the Scriptures, the Bible as we have it, uh, in its original manuscripts are, um, are true and infallible and, and set out, inspired by the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything God wants them to accomplish. So what we do is we take the Scriptures. Now, if you're, if you're just exploring Christianity, you might think this is all a little weird, and I'd say, just, just hang in there. We'll hopefully make it a little less weird as we go. Um, this is how the Bible functions. We sometimes think... Uh, here am I. I'm an Anglican clergyman, so I'm wearing a dress today. Um, and, uh, I, and, I read the, and I come to the Bible and I go, I read the Bible and I take from Scripture, uh, here is just, I read this. And the the plain meaning of the text is obvious and self-evident to anyone who approaches it with a a modicum of intellectual honesty. I take the Bible, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, okay? And it's very simple, isn't it? Isn't that lovely? That's how we read the Bible. It's, It's the Word of God, and this is the plain reading of Scripture, so... When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, well, that means, women, you must all be quiet. Well, does it? Really? Huh. What about other stuff the Bible says? So this is a uh, um, a naïve. And, and I don't mean in that a negative, in a, in a pejorative sense. It's a naive understanding of how any text works and how the authority of Scripture works. Here's a way, here's, let me illustrate to you the complexity actually of how, how, the, how Scripture works. Behind the text, you have the whole world of the Scriptures in which the text came to be written from 3,500 years ago. So here you've got the history and you've got its culture. You've got its language. Listen, um, the Bible wasn't written in English, so so even there is no plain reading of the text because the text that you have in front of you is a translated. It's a translation. There's interpretation built into it, right? So it's not it's not it doesn't it's not simple in that sense. So you've got history, you've got culture, you've got language, you've got time, you've got all this stuff that exists behind the text. And then you've got all the stuff here that exists uh, in front of the text, right? So this is our culture, our culture, um, our worldview, our stuff. And then it's not just the culture out there. You've got all the stuff that exists in our heads, our pre-understandings, our limited intellects, the fact that most of us don't, aren't fluent in Hebrew and Akkadian and uh, and. A classical Greek and Aramaic. How many of you are f- totally fluent in all the languages? So we're not. So we're limited intellectually, right? And then uh, there's also all the stuff here going on in our hearts. Like, what's actually going on in here? that I, oof, That shapes... What's going on in my heart, my desires, that shapes how I come to the Bible. Which bits of the Bible I read, which bits of the Bible I like, which bits of the Bible I'm going to obey. Like massively significant. Um, And then actually, which I'm running out of space here, uh, there's stuff around our hands and our feet. What do I mean by that? Well, what I do shapes how I understand Scripture. Let me tell you, if you're reading the Bible in a, a slum in Bangladesh you're going to come at it with a slightly different perspective than reading it in a coffee shop in Balmain. One's not better or worse than the other. It's just where we are, what we're doing with our lives, shapes what we bring to the text of Scripture. So, what does that mean? This is, this is actually a little more how Scripture reading works. Um, we bring all of this stuff to, the t- to, to, the pr- to, to understand what's going on behind the text. We then bring all of that into the text... The text then comes and changes our minds, changes our hearts, changes what we do, and then as slightly where we live, how we live, and then as as changed people with a slightly changed understanding, we go back to the Bible, back into the world, back into our culture, back into ourselves, and we develop what the philosophers call a hermeneutical spiral, where our understanding of the text grows as it shapes us, and as it shapes us, we're in a better place to understand it, right? Does that make sense? Now, you see what that means. Uh, For this, it's really significant. It means there's, and I'm going to put a big word here. um, It's not that big. uh, But massively important, epistemic humility. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And epistemic humility says we've got to be humble about, about our knowledge, about what we claim to know. It's not to say we can't know the truth. It's just we've got to be humble about how firmly we claim to know that we know the truth. Which is actually interesting, because the gospel itself is a profoundly humbling exercise. Like, if you actually... The gospel, it's all about humility, right? And so it only makes sense that actually it should be intellectually humbling as well. And, of of course, one of the biggest problems is none of us like humility. Maybe I just speak for myself. Um, I have an ongoing challenge with pride. Uh, and intellectual pride. Um, But actually, you know what? There's no room for pride that says, I now understand. I have the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong. And my understanding of scripture is final and full and fixed. I now know everything there is to know about God. I mean, what kind of a bonkers worldview is that? Like, you, you can't read the Bible and end up with that level of pride and arrogance. So we have to come to scripture saying, yes, this is the word of God. God, it is fully authoritative. We're, we're not backing away from that, but we're actually going to engage with scripture with a, a deep epistemic humility, that our understandings are always provisional, which is actually how science works as well. If you're a scientist, you'll understand this, right? That, that the, every knowledge, knowledge always requires humility. The the surest way to stop learning anything is to become arrogant. Because you can only learn something new when you're humble enough to admit that what you knew before wasn't perfect or was wrong, right? Um, So there's another complexity in this that's missing. Can anyone pick it? You never read the Bible alone. (laughs) Like we're always reading it in community. And we need to read it together, particularly around issues of gender, to hear other voices, to read it and listen to Scripture as, as women read it, as the poor read it. One of the most wonderful things that's available, the technology now makes available to us, is if we want to, we can actually connect with commentaries and theology and books that talk about how indigenous people read Scripture and, and what, what do they understand by it? And how Asian people living in the slums of, you know, South Asians living in the slums of India might read scripture, and how Africans read it. And it's not that, that our readings are all contradictory, but actually we read the Bible in community. And, and we need to do that because that challenges and changes our own biases and preconceptions and selfishness. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, someone once described hermeneutics as like the act of clearing your throat before you begin to speak. So I feel like I've been clearing my throat for the last 23 minutes, um, and I have. Now we're ready to actually think about the text from, uh, from Genesis, and it's a profound and powerful text. So let's get into it uh, here. Is, is everyone okay with this? Yeah. Set up the foundations. Okay. Sorry if I'm laboring the point. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are the most powerful and profound and foundational texts in our Christian faith and actually, I think, in the history of literature in the world. These texts set up everything else that comes in the Bible. These texts set up really our whole understanding of the structure of the world and of human relationships. And in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is, is... Women and men described as it's meant to be, so this is. Uh, I just need it. So this is as it's meant to be. So the first point, the world as it's meant to be, and what do we see in this world as it's meant to be? We see uh, a radical equality. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So women and men together share, according to this text, an ontological equality. Now, ontology is the study of the nature of being. And what that means is that right from the start, the Bible says, guess what? Unlike every other culture and world view, the Bible says that women and men together are fundamentally equal. And we're equal because together we image God. We share together. Women and men together are made in the image of God, the imago Dei. And we share in this equality, not just in the nature of our being, but also. But also, so this is equality in the nature of being, but there's also a radical equality in the nature of our doing. So God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So we have an equality together. He didn't say, Well, men, I have a job for you. Go out and fill the world and subdue it. And Eve, you just polish the apples. You do something different. We're given the same mission but it's not just that we're equal. The beauty of this text and the power of this text along with our radical equality is, and I, I've been struggling to find, is a radical mutuality. A radical mutuality that we are different and I'm, but we're still equal. And, and this is radical because there, is, there are forces in our world that would say, no, we're fundamentally the same. If you read The Weekend Australian, there's an article from a, a Canadian academic actually arguing that the science points against that, that in fact all the science shows, well, she's arguing, that in fact there is a a difference in the hardwiring of the brains of women, largely as a result of exposure in utero to testosterone levels, makes all the difference in the world. And we are different, and you can tell the difference. Uh, But but then our world doesn't know what to do with that. So you try and do away with the difference, Or you try and make the difference into something that becomes oppressive and controlling um, one way or the other. And the Bible says no, there's a radical equality and then a mutuality. It's together we're we're the image of God. And guess what? It's together that we go out into the world to be fruitful and multiply, which actually is quite an obvious point. It's a little hard to do that, just men or just women. So we we go together uh, in this world, in this radical mutuality and radical equality. Why is that so significant? Uh, Well, let me tell you. uh, I'll, I'll put it another way. This is one of those ideas that if you disagree with me on this, I think you're just plain wrong. I don't think there's space to disagree with this. I think this is one of those theological hills upon which we as Christians should be prepared to die. Okay, we, should, we, we need to protect this idea. This idea of radical ontological equality but mutuality working together. This matters enormously. No other worldview captures this fundamental essence of humanity. And as we go forward, to have a vision of life where we hold those two things together and say, actually, they're fundamental to to how life works. That matters. If you believe the clash of civilizations hypothesis, saying that going forward in the 21st century, we're going to basically be seeing uh, the the, the big wars and the big challenges in our culture are going to be between the major religions and civilizations, Western Christian civilization, uh, Confucian Chinese, Hindu India, and uh, Islamic Middle East. Okay, When you study those ideas, let me tell you, Confucian uh, Confucian Chinese, uh, Hindu India, and Muslim Middle East do not understand and articulate and hold as precious and fundamental these two ideas in the way that we do. These are radical. The basis of human rights comes from this. This says everyone is equal, irrespective of your class or your gender or your capacity or your intellectual ability or your wealth. Like, this is massively significant. What's, and, and our culture here in Australia, you see, we, we sort of hold that to be true, but we, we've forgotten why it's true. In a post-Christian West, we've, as we've moved from our Christian warrings, we're cutting off the branch upon which we sit. And, and then all that's left when we come to talk about human rights and the, and the importance and the value and the dignity of women, all that's left is arguments from pragmatism and power. And they're not enough in a clash of civilizations. You can't argue just on the basis of power and pragmatism when you're arguing with people who are religious. (laughs) You have to say these are the the view of women and men as religious views. You can't and, and so this matters. This matters, people. And we have to we have to define it and stick by it and be willing to live by it and die by it and it 's incredibly important that we think through its implications, so that 's uh, who we are. It goes on to then say, "Look, um, this mutuality is explained here a little more it 's not good uh, for the man to be alone and then there 's a verse here that is sometimes misused. You know we talk about how the Bible can be used as an instrument of oppression, which it certainly can and and this verse in verse eighteen is often used, and in fact, if you read the Twitter feed on Christian women here you'll you'll hear this that I will make a helper suitable for him and and people argue for the ongoing uh, subordination of women to men on the basis of this text you were well, women are men's helpers that that's worthy of another whole sermon which we don't have time to do today but you know go away and think about it I'll tell you just briefly what I think about it um I don't think in the sweep of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you can possibly argue for the permanent subordination of women in any sense to men on the basis of this text, partly because, for example, uh, in other parts of Scripture, God is described as our helper. The very same Hebrew word, etzer, is, is ascribed to God. So it's not a, a subordinate role. Uh, whatever it is, it's not that. It's talking about the need to be together. And then our mutuality is, is then painted in this exquisite picture not to be taken terribly literally. Do not go away and, you know, men count your ribs and go, am I missing a rib here? You know, woman, you took my rib. Bring it back. Uh, um, that's really an episode from The Simpsons, not the Bible. Um, uh, the, the story says, you know, in this beautiful way, our mutuality is so profound that nothing else in all of creation could actually make us whole. Not even gorgeous labradoodles, you know. And it's, no, no animals can do that, you know. Um, it, and so God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this, this is what life is meant to be. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It's an, a picture of exquisite intimacy and togetherness, separate but together. And then, in case we miss the point, he says, well, how do we see that worked out in front of us? Well, verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So the one fleshness is, is unpacking this radical intimacy and mutuality. And all of this comes together in the most extraordinary and beautiful picture of humankind. So how are women and men to relate to each other? you want a vision adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame so what that means is that that adam and his eve uh, were known and still loved so what does shame do shame says if you if you really know me you won't love me so the only way i can be known is if the only way i can be loved is, is if you don't really know me and the picture that God says, how are women and men to relate to each other? A complete absence of shame that we can know each other and still accept and love each other. This is a picture of how men and women are to relate to each other. Uh, isn't that amazing? <laughs> this is how, now, let me tell you, 25 years of pastoral work in churches and many, 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 many conversations with uh, women and men in long-term monogamous relationships in marriage. Just being married doesn't mean you automatically get to this. (laughs) Like there is shame woven into so much of our relationships and our relating. And that's what we see is what has gone wrong in the world. Genesis 3, uh, immediately this story says, women and men believe Satan, they mistrust God, and so what happens is... uh, The the eyes, what happens immediately after they eat um, in this great story, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Shame that divides us from each other is the immediate consequence of human sin and evil. I actually think, I have this hypothesis I'd be very interested to tease out, and I might do it. I actually think, All the energy for our uh, hurting of each other, our mistrust of each other, our oppression of uh, each other, all of that is actually driven by this dynamic of shame. It's ways of dealing with my shame, of wanting to connect. I want to connect with you, but if I connect with you, it means you're going to know me, and if you know me, you're not going to love me. And so I actually think you could, I'm, I think you could argue that actually it's this dynamic of shame within every human heart and every human life and every human relationship that actually energizes our, our great system-wide oppression of each other and the difficulties we have relating to each other. So they were both naked, so we're, we're alienated, we're from each other. And you see this alienation works out, God comes looking for Adam and Eve and uh, and and has a chat to Adam, goes, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you were naked? And so what does the man do? See, how you're, you're full of shame. God is exposing your shame, so what's the first thing that men do? Well, the woman you put here with me. Now, haven't we all heard that before? It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. Um, and in this instance, the woman's fault. And then, of course, the woman... Well, she's got to find someone to blame as well. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the man blamed the woman and the woman blamed the serpent and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> That's such a dad joke, isn't it? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> um, so this, this picture of sin, actually I, when I was at university in Cape Town, I was doing philosophy and we had a philosopher, like he really changed, this Catholic philosopher changed my life by spending like half a, half a term unpacking the Christian doctrine of creation and sin based on this text. It, life-changing when you start to unpack what it looks like. He says, so this is the effect of, of shame and of separation and otherness in our lives. Well, you know, there's a curse that comes on the woman, on the, on the, on the serpent. Uh, and and there's a spiritual battle that we're part of, um, and then look at what he says to women, to you know, um, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now this is worthy of a whole sermon. Let me tell you two way, the ways these verses are misused. They're misused, and you'll see this on this even on this Twitter feed. That well. Um, Women are the real cause of, of sin in the world because you're easily deceived and your pain in childbirth is, um, is a punishment for your sin. Well, I think the text is saying, listen, do um, you know what? Sin has, has fundamentally ruptured all relationships. So, childbirth is absolutely central to our mutuality and to fulfilling the commission we were given to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And even in that that most intimate and generative of relationships, that relationship that actually mirrors our divine image, our ability to create new life, even into that relationship is injected pain and suffering and hurt. That's the point. It's not saying it's a good thing that women suffer in childbirth, and it's also not saying that women shouldn't take analgesia, to you know, which some Christ, crazy Christians know, like embrace the pain if you're going to be really biblical. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, That's nuts, and I have never given birth, but I, I, can, I think that seems nuts, right? Um, and then there's this verse, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I think, again, that is saying that in the dynamic of women and men relating, it's, it's fraught, It's fraught with complexity. And the dynamics of shame make it so hard to really get along. And here's how I see this working. That there is something that has gone so wrong in how we're desperate to connect with each other but so terrified of being seen as we really are. So all our attempts at connection become complicated and oppressive and distancing and, and messy. So what happens then is that there's something that goes on as a result of sin, that women continue to love dopey, stupid, oppressive men, even when it's damaging to themselves. Isn't that right? Ah, it's, ah, that's, that's not the way it's meant to be, little darling. <laughs> that's not the way it's meant to be, that women just submit. This is not an argument for submission. This is saying, and I saw that in my family. My mum, who was this brilliant, smart doctor, in, uh, you know, she still loved my dad, which was nuts, like totally nuts. He didn't give a rip about her, and he. Mum goes to his funeral and still feels like she's better than any of the other women who he had also mistreated and abused and who'd gathered around him at his deathbed and all the various women were there at his funeral and mum still felt superior because at least she'd married him. And I'm like, mum, that's so tragic. But I see that all the time. Battered women who'll stay with abusive husbands. Oh, you know... And, and he will rule over you. Here's how I think. This is another whole sermon for men. And actually, really, what I want to do, if we we needed a sermon series where we smack men around the head, um, because because this is what we do as men. We're so scared of being known, and we struggle so hard with vulnerability and shame that that you know what we do? Well, we just we use our greater physical strength and we oppress women. And we take advantage of that—the the, the fact that their need for connection and the way they're dealing with shame—is they'll put up with any kind of useless person. And we—we we, we are so scared we can only expre- express love and, and, and get connection through abuse and control. That's terrible. <laughs> That's terrible. Actually, you know, if we really want to change the world, we've got to change the hearts of men and and women. But we've got to address. So this is not a this is not an endorsement of the patriarchy this is a this is showing this is what patriarchy this is what oppression looks like and it's terrible So the question is at 41 minutes how do we get back to this That's the healing of humanity right and let me tell you what it isn't. It isn't a drop your clothes at the front door on the way into church next Sunday. <laughs> okay, stop imagining that. You're not coming? Yeah, just listen to the podcast. It'll be safer next <laughs> week there have been Christian groups through history who have tried that approach. In the 70s in California, it was quite popular, right? That's, we're not going there. That's not what it means. <laughs> I'll tell you what the way, the way back is. The way back is here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and hers. God talking to Satan, he says, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who's he talking about there? Well, out of a woman is going to come the Savior of the world. Out of a woman, from a woman, is going to come God's answer to all this brokenness and pain and shame and distress. This is the Son of God, the Son of Mary, who comes into the world to crush all that is evil and all that is wrong with the world. So you know where the healing of the world lies? It lies in Jesus it lies in, this, in the seed of a woman who is going to put an end to all that has gone wrong with the world. And, is, and in Jesus lies the healing of all of our gender roles and relationships. And let me tell you, it is, oh, you know, why, why, do, why is this so important for us? Well, the, the work for us at Darling Street is to figure out together what this looks like in our own relationships not, and I'm not just talking about marriage here, but across the genders to live this out. You want to know, do you want a picture of what Genesis uh, looks like, what the man and the woman together in knowing no shame looks like? Do you want a picture of that? Go and read the Gospels and look at how Jesus related to women. Go and look. Look how he related to men. And that's where you start to see what a healed world looks like. When he can look at a woman caught in adultery who in another time would have been stoned and shamed and outcast and you can see Jesus just love her and accept her and say, well, you know, go and sin no more. That's, That's shame dealt with and healed. So the most important thing we can do as a church is to learn from Jesus deeply, intelligently, honestly, humbly what it is to actually learn to love each other, women and men. And oh my goodness, then... To say to a lot to a city that is so confused hey there 's a better way there 's a better way of living women and men together and, and let 's learn from Jesus how to do that let 's pray, our Lord and God uh, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that I- you have created us uh, male and female sometimes we may think it might have been easier if, if these differences didn't exist. But in the difference lies all the potential for mutuality and wholeness and love. And I pray for our church that we will, we will be a community who learns from Jesus how to be healed and restored. And to love each other. And to find, find new ways of being women and men together. And I pray that as we do this, we will bear witness that it is life giving to this city, to bring healing and grace uh, to all those women and men in the city who, who are just desperate for life to work, but confused as to what that looks like and how to get there. And uh, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, who came to make all this possible.